Good morning. It has been a long time, ever since last uh, Saturday, <laughs> since I stood behind this pulpit. But uh, praise the Lord for the opportunity to, to minister God's Word. I want to ask you a question. Do you remember the day, probably the most outstanding day in your life's history, the day that you came to the Lord as a broken, humble, contrite sinner, and said, Lord Jesus, I accept your salvation, your forgiveness. And you were ashamed of your sins, but so relieved that God had sent his son to the cross for your salvation, and he saved you, died for your sins. And when you believed that day, immediately your sins were removed from you as far as the east is from the west. God buried your sins in his sea of forgetfulness, never to bring them up again. And he says, the omniscient God, the one who knows everything, says that your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. Do you remember that day? That was a day of absolute freedom. Luke talked about it this morning in the Lord's Supper. We talked about having been slaves to sin and uh, how we have gained the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Talk about freedom. A guilty sinner before God who has been set free and there is no condemnation. Judgment has been passed already on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you trusted the Lord that day. How? By faith. By faith, you took God at his word, you read what he said, you said, I believe it because God said it, that's enough for me. That's faith, faith in what God said. And faith really, in, in its most reduced form, is this. Faith is simply believing God. That's it. That's what faith is. God says it, I believe it, that's an act of faith. And when you believe what he says, you believe that you're a sinner, you believe that he is your only savior, and you believe that he died on the cross for you, for you, and you believe he rose the third day, you're saved. How do you know that? Because God promises that in his word. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what? You will be saved. That's what he says. That's his promise. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. There couldn't be anything simpler in the universe. Simply trusting God. Well, the devil has an arsenal of weapons that he unleashes on believers. And the believers in the early church were no exception. And that's what we've been reading about in the book of Hebrews. So I want to read just one passage. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles, to Hebrews 10. We're not going to put the verses up on the screen today because I want you to look at your Bibles. I want you to see what it says for yourself. Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. But recall the former days in which... 
after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Wow. So these people came to know the Lord. They trusted in him for salvation. And then the devil unleashed persecution upon them, even to the point where they were stripped of their possessions, probably ostracized from their uh, family, probably without work in some cases. And yet they took it because they knew that in the future, they had an enduring possession. Heaven. They were going to heaven. What difference did it make if they lost everything on earth? How have you been attacked since you first trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you suffered? What, what suffering have you experienced since coming to know him? Have you suffered tribulation? Have you suffered persecution? Have you suffered the loss of your possessions or persecution from family, friends? Maybe you left the Catholic Church and your family cut you off. Maybe you left another uh, religious group and fell in the same thing. Some of you have endured suffering. I know that. But the key word is endured. Endured. You went through that. Because you loved the Lord and you joyfully accepted the loss, knowing that you have a better and more enduring possession in heaven. So when they came to faith in Christ, uh, they trusted in him. They suffered the loss because they believed God's promise of a future in heaven. The devil has lots of weapons. And he uses them effectively. And we are not ignorant of his devices, the scripture says. He uses persecution. The problem with persecution is that it often makes believers stronger. Do you know that believers in China are actually praying that the believers in America might be persecuted? Why? Because they know that it causes them to grow in the Lord. The devil uses tragedies and personal loss. Problem with that is that Christians often develop from that an eternal perspective that they wouldn't have had otherwise. He uses the weapon of financial loss. And it backfires because believers learn more about God's daily provision for them and his care for them. He may afflict you with some form of sickness, whether it's physical or mental or some other sickness that you have, only to find that you learn that God's grace is sufficient for you. So some of these weapons aren't too effective if a Christian has faith in God and trusts him through these situations. And initially, the Hebrew believers came to the Lord by faith, were persecuted, joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. And um, they had faith that God would ultimately give them treasures in heaven that would not fade away where rust and moth corrupt and thieves break through, 
cannot break through and steal, where thieves, where rust and moth do not corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. That's what their hope was in. So that's good. That was a good start. But then the devil brings out his atomic bomb. And I would say, from my experience personally and watching other believers in my lifetime, that this is probably the most effective strategy the devil has. Probably more effective weapon than any other weapon he uses, and it is the weapon of doubt. The weapon of doubt. And it's like an atomic bomb when it goes off. And that weapon of doubt leads to discouragement and the temptation to quit. You started well. The scripture says that. Who has hindered you? You endured hardship and persecution. You walked many years with Christ, but you've become discouraged. Why? Why? Have the promises of the Lord been revoked? Have they been overturned? Has the Lord decided not to follow through with his word? Has he promised something to you that he has not fulfilled? Or has Satan dropped that atomic bomb of doubt into your heart and you've become discouraged simply because you doubt his word? Well, you know, when I read the book of Hebrews... I can't help think about a time in the history of Israel when Israel was in bondage. So, Luke, I appreciate you talking about bondage and slavery this morning because it really dovetails into the message this morning. Uh, they were slaves in Egypt. And it says in Exodus 1, 13, uh, the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and all manner of service in the field. But then we learn that God had pity on his people. And he raised up Moses to be a deliverer to bring them out of Egypt. And God showed his mighty power by bringing ten plagues that devastated Egypt and its people. And God brought Israel through the Red Sea on dry land... Safety to safety on the other side. And when the Israelites turned and they looked back at where they had come from, and they saw the Egyptian army coming through the midst of the Red Sea, and the chariots and the horses and the army, it's a little freaky watching that. And the advancing army began to gain ground, and the Lord caused the, the winds to cease, and the waters cascaded down upon the army, and their horses and their army were drowned in the midst of the sea. It was a stunning victory. And on the other side, in safety, Israel took up a song. And they made up a brand new song and they sang it. And this is part of the song. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. What a song of praise as they had just witnessed the defeat of their slave 
taskmasters and the army that was about to, to bring them back into slavery. Now, you would think after such an amazing deliverance such as this, that there would never, ever be doubt in the minds of the Israelites about God's care, about his compassion for them, about his power, about the truth of his word, or his ability uh, to do what he says. They had just witnessed the greatest deliverance of any people group in history up to that point. Two million people experienced a miraculous deliverance and their enemies were soundly defeated. Praise the Lord. What a great, great victory it was. Israel, the Bible says that this was Israel's redemption. Israel was redeemed from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And God not only promised to deliver them, but he promised to bring them into the promised land, a land that he describes as a land flowing with milk and honey. Now they're safe on the shore. The Red Sea separated them from Egypt. And they were on their way to the promised land. One would think that the Israelites would never have trouble trusting in God from this time forth and forevermore. Right? Well, there's a lesson in Israel's history for us. For we have experienced an even greater redemption from a crueler bondage and a deliverance from the shackles of sin that enslaved us. The Bible says we were slaves of sin. Luke quoted that this morning from a different passage, but it's found again in Romans 6.17. We were in slavery and we were in bondage to our sin. We could not set ourselves free. Our sin made us serve it with rigor. And our sin made our lives bitter with hard bondage, in uncleanness, in lawlessness, and in all manner of service to the devil. Our sin was literally wearing us out. But God had pity on us. And in Romans chapter 5 it says this, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ redeemed us to God by his blood. And the Bible says that we were set free from sin. We were delivered from the penalty of sin. We are being delivered from the power of sin on a daily basis. And soon we will be delivered from the very presence of sin and be with him in heaven for all eternity. Just as the children of Israel look back at the enemies defeated by the Red Sea, we look back and see the cross and we see the empty tomb and we know that the Lord has defeated sin and death and hell for us by shedding his blood on the cross for us. We are standing safe on the shore of God's forgiveness. And we sing a new song as well. It's found in Revelation, and it says this, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain 
And again, you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Now, you would think with such an amazing deliverance like this that there would never be any doubt in our minds about God's care, about his compassion for us, about his power about the truth of his promises or his ability to do what he says, we have experienced the greatest deliverance of any people group ever in the history of mankind and ever to come. There is no greater deliverance. Millions of people who were dead in trespasses and sins, he has made alive. By grace we have been saved. He has conquered our enemy by inflicting a mortal wound to the head of the devil. And he has defeated him. Praise the Lord. One would think that we would never have trouble trusting God from this time forward and forevermore. Well, the subject this morning is faith. And if you want a simple definition, this is it. Faith is simply trusting God. It's trusting God in every circumstance, in every trouble, in every trial, in everything that you go through in life. Faith is believing God. It's trusting Him. If God says it, it's true. If God says it, it's real. If God says it, it's an established fact. Faith simply believes God. Well, the sad fact is that the Israelites barely planted their feet on the dry ground on the other side of the Red Sea, and they began to doubt the Lord. And I want to say to you this morning, I like thinking about opposites, doubt is the opposite of faith. If you doubt God or you doubt his word, that is not faith. You cannot say, I am living by faith, I am trusting in God, but I'm doubting his word. That's impossible. You cannot have both together. Faith is the opposite of doubt. Doubt is the opposite of faith. And immediately they began to doubt God. We're going to die of thirst. Wait a minute, God just finished saying to you that I'm going to bring you out of slavery and I'm going to take you to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and hunger, uh, 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 honey. Really? You're going to die of thirst? And the people complained against Moses and they really assassinated the character of God, doubting uh, the promises of God and they're saying, What shall we drink? It wasn't just, hey, we're thirsty. Can we get a glass of water? It was, God is going to kill us. That's what they were saying. You say, well, that's a little exaggerated, Don, don't you think? No, because in the the next chapter, chapter 16 of Exodus, it says, Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. Boy, they have a wild imagination. 
That was not their history in Egypt. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Wow. Did they not just witness the destruction of their enemies? Did they not just witness the ten plagues by which God brought them out? Did they not just sing that song? Yes. But the problem is, they were hungry and so they began to doubt God. Then God provided graciously for them this thing called manna, something that nobody had ever eaten before. And I would love to have a taste of that stuff because apparently it is so good that it's called angel's food. It's the food the angels eat. How do I know that? Well, because it says in Psalm 78, God commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven and rained down manna on them to eat and gave them the bread of heaven. Men ate angel's food. That's what it says. He sent them food to the full. But they spoke against God, against Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? There is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That was their response to God's provision. Wow. The Bible says the problem is that they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Can I ask you, are we any different than the children of Israel? Do we worry about how we're going to make it? How are we going to make ends meet? Where is our next meal going to come from? Jesus said, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Yet how much of our life is spent worrying about things in the future? Our next meal, our next mortgage payment, our retirement, or maybe it's about life. Will God ever bring me a husband? Will he ever bring me a wife? What if I need a new car? What if I'd like to buy a house? And we worry and worry and worry about all of these things as if God is unaware of our needs. Something simple as, what am I going to wear? You know that worrying is the same thing as doubting? It is. Doubting is the opposite of faith. And so Jesus asks this penetrating question. He says this, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? faith. So you see, the issue isn't, has God promised? The issue is, where is your faith? Where is your faith? 
When you find your heart questioning God, look out. That is an atomic bomb from the pit of hell. That's what it is. And the devil wants you to doubt God. God does not lack the power. He does not lack the ability. He does not lack in compassion for you. He does not lack in care for you. He does not lack in the means or the knowledge to deliver you. But it's more likely that he's waiting for you to trust him. Therefore, do not worry, Jesus said, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? Or any other question like this? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So as I mentioned to you, God promised the children of Israel that he would not only deliver them from Egypt, but he would bring them to the promised land, a land flowing of milk and honey. So he accomplished one thing first. That's the deliverance. The next is yet to come. We should be able to, as believers, look back at our history and say, look how far God has brought me. He saved me. He delivered me. I'm redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Everything he promised about salvation, he has done. It is finished. Every promise that is still future has to be fulfilled because it is the same God who promised it. And so now Israel is in the wilderness. They're heading towards the promised land. And you say, are you ever going to get to Hebrews, Don? Maybe. (laughs) We'll see. God promised land. But God promised land before the children of Israel were ever in Egypt in the first place. He promised Abraham that he would give him land. And he promised how far the land would stretch how big it would be. And then he repeated the promise to Abraham's son, Isaac. And then he repeated the promise to, A- to Isaac's son, uh, Jacob. And Joseph, the son of Jacob, asked the children of Israel, when God brings us out of Egypt, take my bones with you. Why? Because he believed the promise of God that they would enter into the promised land. Moses came many years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph were dead. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. That's good. It shows us something about the compassion of God in your circumstances and their circumstances. So I have come down to deliver them out of the, land, the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, just in case you didn't know the land you're going to, okay? All of those people who own all of that land, it's going to be all yours, okay? So the two things, deliverance from Egypt, entrance into the promised land. Now, there's one curious thing about faith. Faith is not some kind of mystical thing that, you know, maybe if I, if I have positive thinking, things will take place. That's not what faith is. 
Faith demands the surest evidence, and that evidence is found in the Word of God. If God has made a promise, you can bank on it. It's absolutely sure. So God promised. He says so right here in Exodus chapter 3. Faith demands the surest evidence, finds it in God's Word. So I'm going, to t- I'm going to say this to you. If you have a promise from God, you've been reading through the Scripture, and God, in a special way, applies His Word to your heart, to your situation, bank on it. It's that simple. You can trust God that definitively. There is nothing sure in the universe. We have the sure Word of God. So we, the... Um, Israelites came close to the promised land, and Moses said, okay, it's time to send out some spies. And he sends spies into the land. There's 12 of them. And they go throughout the land, and they look over everything that God has promised them. And they come back, and they're just blown away by the whole thing. They really are. In fact, it's so intriguing to see it because there's a little description in the Scripture that says that they carried with them, when they came back, a pole between two men. Now, I go shopping at Safeway, and I go shopping at Costco, and Costco's the place of the mega stuff, right? You go there, and you get like, you know, a a uh, 45-gallon bin of uh, olive oil for your supper or whatever. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's got mega stuff. And I, I buy grapes there all the time, but they're not like this. These are packages, you know, maybe a four pound package of grapes. This cluster of grapes was so large that it had to be carried between two men with a pole. And I'll guarantee you they were straining under the weight of that thing. And so they come back with the evidence of God's blessing. And they come back to to Moses and they say, it's a great land, we spied it out, and this is the fruit. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Actually, that was the comment by uh, Joshua and Caleb, the two spies that believe God. And they said, let us go up and take the land. God has given it to us. And the ten other spies said, wait, 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 just a minute. You have not told the whole story. It may be as God says it is, a land flowing with milk and honey, but let, me tell, or let us tell you what we saw there. There are giants in the land. There are fortified cities in that land. And we are like grasshoppers in comparison. That's how they responded. Ten spies overruled them. And uh, this is what it says when the congregation heard this in Numbers 14. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt. If only we had died in this wilderness. Are you serious, people? Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt. So they said to one another, let's select a leader and return to Egypt. Wow. Why did they rebel against the Lord? It was because they doubted his word. 
They doubted his promises. And they hardened their heart against the Lord and did not exercise faith in him. The crazy thing is, they were just a few steps away from victory. That's how close they came to victory. And they hardened their hearts, and they said they wanted to go back to Egypt. You may be discouraged this morning by something going on in your life. You may be discouraged because you're doubting the word of God. And I'm telling you, you are just a few steps away from victory. Jesus said he is coming again. We believe it could be any time, any moment. We are just a few steps away from victory. Why would we quit now? Last week, Noah read to us, For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. And yet there are some who are discouraged and look back and actually believe the lie that it would be better to turn back and go back to the way they used to be, the way life used to be, to walk away. I enjoyed my sin for a season. It still seems enjoyable to me. Really? You were slaves. Children of Israel, you were slaves. Children of God, before you knew him, you were slaves. But when a believer gets discouraged, they often make very foolish choices. The ten spies saw problems. They saw fortified cities. They saw giants. They saw that they were like grasshoppers in the eyes of their enemies. Joshua and Caleb, on the other hand, saw the same thing. But they reported that this is a land flowing with milk and honey. By faith, they wanted to claim God's promise and claim the land that God was giving them. Perhaps in your life, all you see is a mountain before you. Jesus talked about mountains that stand between us and receiving the blessing of God. And you know what? You have a choice when you come to a mountain in your life something that's hindering you from moving forward. You can exercise faith in God and say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and it shall be done. Why? Because God promised it would. But you say, well, that takes an awful lot of faith to say something like that. No, it doesn't. Jesus said, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, a mustard seed, That is the smallest seed, one of the smallest seeds in all of botany, if that's the right word to use for that. Tiny little seed, it's like a speck in your hand. How much faith is that? How much faith can you put into a mustard seed? And that's all it takes to move a mountain that stands between you and accomplishing the will of God in your life. And Jesus said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there. And nothing, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. What's the mountain in your life? By faith, believer, we can move mountains. Many of you have traveled through the Santa Cruz Mountains on Highway 17, heading down towards Santa Cruz and Carmel and all those places. As you come over the crest of uh, the hill, 
you come near Santa Cruz, there's a road that takes you to a place called Mount Hermon. And uh, Mount Hermon is a Christian conference ground. It's been there for over 100 years, I believe. And uh, it was first established uh, back, I think, like the early 1900s. And there was a small road that uh, went right through the conference grounds to the other side. So it was kind of like a small dirt road. The original road was, and they paved it, and a small two-lane road. And but it became the main road for people who were tourists coming down uh, a certain way to Santa Cruz and, and people who lived in the area would go through there. And then it became you know, full of car traffic and truck traffic. Well, the conference ground, if you've ever been down there, you know that the conference ground is actually split on both sides of the road. On one side, you have housing and some of their buildings, and on the other side, you have uh, like the Ponderosa Lodge and, and whatnot. And they were finding that the traffic was a real problem because as people were coming out from their cabins and going to meetings, you know, they had to look both ways and dash across the street, and it was dangerous. And they actually built a, causeway, or a, a, a pedestrian path over the top to get people there, and people never used it because it was easier to cross the road and nearly get hit by cars and all that kind of stuff. Well, it was a problem, and it became such a problem that even when they had meetings down there and speakers were, were preaching, you know, that was the time that the trucks would go by. didn't matter what time of day the meeting was. That was the time, and the trucks would go by, and the speakers would be saying, and the Lord says, and the truck would go by, and they'd have to stop, and, you know, you'd lose your audience, and, and it, was a, it was a problem. And there was a man who lived down there. He was actually in the 19, late 1960s, early 70s. Um, his name was Bill um, something, I forget the last name. And he was the director of the uh, conference grounds for probably two decades. And he saw that this was a real problem, and he began to pray. And he asked the Lord if the Lord would somehow allow them to make this a small road again and... Uh, stop the traffic flow. And he actually went to the county of uh, Santa Cruz and appealed to the, uh, the officials there and asked them if there's something that they could do to redirect the road around Mount Hermon instead of through it because it was a danger to the people and so on. And, you know, it became a little bit of a neighborhood issue and people said, well, you know, why should we do this for people just to pray and all this kind of stuff. And anyway, long, long story short, uh, he didn't get anywhere. And so they began to pray. Bill Gwynn, that was his name. By 1968, 16,000 cars and trucks roared through that area every single day. That's a lot of cars. And uh, the director, Bill Gwynn, began to pray that God would intervene. And every time he crossed the road to go to the um, conference grounds, he said, Lord, please do your will. Please solve this frightening nightmare. And he began to pray. And hundreds joined in praying with Bill uh, that the Lord would do something to uh, change the, the situation. And really they began to pray, Lord, would you please move this mountain that stands in the way uh, for us that we might um, not have this continuing problem. During the spring of 1969... Heavy rains began to saturate the Santa Cruz Mountains. There were very few uh, 
temporary, there were a few temporary road closures, but the road was repaired every time there was a little bit of a, a slide. And, and, um, and so, Bill, in uh, late spring, one night, Bill was going to bed and he just prayed one last final time before he slept. He said, Lord, why not tonight? Why not tonight? He fell asleep. He woke up the next morning, went about his daily business, got up, went down to the place where the meeting uh, hall was, and he said, well, this is weird. There's no traffic. And he's looking, he's not even hearing traffic. And so he walked down the road a little way. And as he walked down the road, he realized that through the night, God had done what he had been praying for. God moved a mountain. And the Santa Cruz Mountain, Mount Hermon there, it slid across the road, and it demolished the road, and it, it took out so much of the road, and there was so much soil now on the road, that when the officials for the roads in Santa Cruz County came and looked at it, they said, this is impossible. There's no way we can re, uh, redo a road through here. It's impossible. We have to put a road around Mount Hermon, not through it anymore. God is a mountain-moving God. When we have faith in him, he is able to move mountains. 1972, <clears throat> they opened the new road called the Mount Hermon Bypass Road. Seven years after this happened, Corey Tenboom, whose own miraculous life of faith story is recorded in the book, The Hiding Place, was invited to speak at the conference grounds at an annual banquet, at their annual uh, banquet. And as Bill Gwynn showed her how the Lord had given them funds to build this building and that building and all the flowers and the trees, and she was very interested and impressed with everything, I'm sure, um, they walked down the road together, and she says, show me the mountain that God moved. Corey Tenboom had a camera with her, and she did not take a single picture of anything, not one picture of the buildings, not one picture of the trees, not one picture of the flowers, nothing about the conference grounds at all. But when she got to the place where God had moved the mountain, she took out her camera and she snapped a picture. And he says to her, why are you taking this picture? She said, because God did this. God moved the mountain. What mountain stands between you and accomplishing the will of God in your life? What hindrance is there in your life that stops you from completing what God has started in your life? What giants, what fortified cities are there causing you such alarm when God is offering you a land, so to speak, a land flowing with milk and honey. Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The children of Israel were just a few feet away from victory, but they refused to go into the promised land. God's word had not failed them. God's word had not failed them. God's word had not failed. His promises had not failed, but they had failed to take God at his word and respond to it by faith. And over the next 40 years, the desert was littered with the carcasses 
of the children of Israel who did not believe God's word and would not respond to his word in faith. Last week, Noah continued to read and we came across the verse, the just shall live by faith. The book of Hebrews is a book that is filled with better things. And I think Noah has done an excellent job in trying to get that across. A better sacrifice, a better redeemer, a better high priest, a better sacrifice, a better, a better, a better, a better, or a greater. The terms are used both ways throughout the book of Hebrews. There is something better. Why go back to the shadows? There is something better for our future. Why go back in our thinking? And there's... As we come to chapter 11, there is a better way to live. And that better way is to live the Christian life by faith. That is, to take God at his word. To trust him. To rely on what he says. To say as you read the scripture, look, if God says this, it's sure. You can trust God's character You can trust his word, and you can step out in faith, and you can believe what he says. If you're discouraged this morning or plagued with doubts, the answer is found here in chapter 11. The answer is faith. Faith in God. And so as we turn to chapter 11 next week, because we're not going to have time to look at it today, but that's just the... I'm just trying to whet your appetite for what's to come. Faith in God. And as we look at chapter 11, we are going to see what are often called the heroes of faith. But let me say this to you. These are ordinary people. They are just like you and just like me who did extraordinary things because they had faith in the eternal God. And if you want to accomplish great things for God, it will be through faith in him and through faith in his word. And so next week, Lord willing, we will begin to look at Hebrews 11 and the faith that pleases God. I hope you come back for that. I do want to say that if anyone has prepared, because I know Noah did this every single week, and so I don't want to neglect my duties, that if anybody has memorized the two verses that are the um, uh, key verses of, the, of Hebrews, uh, you are welcome to say them this morning. Anybody that would like to? If not, why don't we turn to them? And we'll say them together. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, we are ashamed to say that very often we have been like the children of Israel. We have come right to the very border of victory and we have turned back. And Lord, we ask you to forgive us for every time in our lives where we have done this and for the thoughts that uh, really our uh, doubts against you and against your word. We just pray, Lord, you would forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, let us be a people of faith, people who claim the promises of God, people who look into your word, see what you have said, claim these for ourselves, and live the life of faith that is pleasing to you. Lord, we ask you that you would challenge us, that you would change us, and that you would make us men and women of great, bold faith. And that, Lord, you would uh, accomplish your, uh, your purposes through us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.